You're listening to Lost and Sound in Berlin, a podcast exploring music and identity in Berlin, supported using public funding by the Arts Council of England. Episode 3, A Rare Import. Last episode, I began the day meeting Carmel, Clarice and Sabelle from No Shade, the all-female and non-binary identifying DJ collective reshaping gender balance across the city's club culture. Then Daniela de Picciotto recounted her experiences during the Bohemian West Berlin of the 80s and how this led into the birth of the Love Parade. Today, join me as I continue my journey, meeting people whose lives and loves weave in and out of the rich tapestry of music that spans across this city and across the years. And through this, I want to learn and share with you why Berlin has such a creative energy. I'm in Mitte. Not only is this the most central part of Berlin, it's one of only two boroughs that joins together what was formerly east and west. Now where I'm stood is a cosmopolitan menagerie of organic lunch spots, luggage-carrying internationals and trams whizzing past. I'm off to meet Daniel Miller. Forty years ago, Daniel founded Mute Records. Both he and Mute have a long history with this city, a history that spans from Fad Gadget to Tabesh Mode and Nick Cave in the 80s to Trezor in the 90s and more recently, himself kickstarting a DJ career at Berghain. Hi there. Hello, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Cool. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah good to see you again. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah, we first went to West Berlin in 1980 when Fad Gadget played there and... I was the kind of sound... Well, Fagad was on mute. He was the first artist on mute, and apart from my own personal projects. And I was the kind of tour manager and sound person for that show, and that was, was a crazy show, which nearly all the Fagadget shows were. And we stayed in a hotel in the Kudam, where all the rooms were completely, looked completely different. That was the idea of the hotel. And that's, that's really... And we drank late. Those are really my... That was a very short, brief kind of Berlin initiation. But then a couple of years after that, I started working with the birthday party who were living in Berlin at the time, and they recorded in Hansa Studios. So I went over to visit them. That This must be 83, I guess. I uh, went over to visit them in the studio. And at the time I, I went over, we were in the, sort of the middle of recording a Depeche Mode album, Construction Time Again, in London and thinking about where to mix it. And I sort of fell in love with the with Hansa Studios, which was amazing, and also with, uh, you know, started to really get to love Berlin. And so we decided to mix the Depeche Mode record there with Gareth Jones, who was also uh, who was the engineer on the project, who was, who was also living in Berlin as well, so it made a lot of sense. The thing that, that was particularly attractive about it for us at the time, this night talking about 1983, mm. The licensing laws in the UK were very strict, and it was very hard. You know, if you worked normally, we worked till about midnight in the studio in London. You go out the studio, and there was nothing there. You know, you couldn't get a drink, you couldn't get anything to eat. So you just kind of went. You're in the studio and just went home. It was not a very normal kind of, you know, work day. 
you know, um, but in Berlin, you know, we could go out for a drink, get something to eat, not go crazy because we had to work, we work very hard, but at least you'd have some kind of life outside the studio in the hotel. And that, that made a big difference to us. And then Martin, he met a woman there who he moved in with later on from, from Berlin. And, you know, I got to know people like Neubauten, but I got to know Neubauten earlier than that, but, you know, got to know all those people better and the p- p- people are generally in the scene, you know, Gudrun, Gut and all those kind of people. And so, you know, it was, uh, it felt kind of homely, to, homely, home, not homely, but kind of felt like, I felt like I was had a, I, I had a connection to it, you know. What do you think... Uh, it is about Berlin that um, when you first arrive there, in your first few years of going there, mm-hmm. kind of uh, nurtures creativity. Because basically, Berlin was, as everybody knows, was in the middle of East Berlin, I mean, East yeah, well, East Germany. Actually, mm-hmm. it was like a little island. So, for 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 business and for general, you know, for people who weren't Berliners. There was nothing really to attract people. It was just kind of a hassle to get there. You know, you had to go through the the East German corridor, which we did on that the drove through on that first time we went. I went with Fad Gadget. That was fun. Was it quite nerve wracking going through? It wasn't nerve wracking. It was just you know. I remember it was like it was a classic, really really foggy, foggy night, and we 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 listened to, we listened to the soundtrack to Psycho in the van <laughs> while we were driving through, just to kind of give it the the full yeah. the full effect. And, you know, of course, there was a sort of kind of romance about the fact that it was surrounded by a wall and yeah. it still had, I mean, it was still very much a post-war city, whereas most cities had kind of moved on from the war. It would, Berlin was still very much kind of like a, like a you know, symbol of, of the Cold War and all those kind of things. A lot of tension, but exciting. And it gave, I think, it gave people a sense that in those enclosed by a wall, it, Gave also gave some kind of strange sense of freedom as well. Yeah. Because yeah. people were free within... Like an island or something. Yeah, like an island, yeah. yeah. Also, what were the things that attracted you to working at Hansa Studios? Uh, was there a Bowie element there, or was that kind of just incidental? There wasn't... For me, that wasn't a particularly big... I mean, of course, I'd heard about it through that, mm. but that wasn't... It was more, more, of a, more of a practical and technical kind of reasons. First of all, it was an amazingly good studio very mixed kind of spaces mm. and technology so it had the huge live room which it, which is the studio two which is famous for all those things bowie mm. you know all the birthday parties but all those things were recorded there huge hall but it also had a very and that was kind of nice old-fashioned equipment and then they had the mix room which was super high-tech was the most high-tech studio I'd ever seen you know at the time and the Deutschmark was quite weak against the pound so it was economically viable to go and work there and Gareth Jones who we were working with on all those Depeche Mode projects we did there he virtually he virtually lived there so he knew the studio inside out he knew the people very well so we could get away with doing things you know weird miking up halls and stairwells and things like that that might be we wouldn't have probably been able to do in other studios and we were very keen on using all the acoustic spaces we could find there. You know? Yeah. Because Hansa itself was a very, was kind of a relatively conservative studio. I mean, most of the things they recorded there was Schlager music. Yeah. And those kind of things. It wasn't like a, an alternative space, should we say. It was quite a mainstream, very well run, very well maintained, but mainstream. So it was more about the relationship that we had with them. I think Berlin, I think there was definitely an atmosphere that felt you could try things musically, production-wise, 
maybe that you wouldn't have done otherwise. Yeah. Who knows? It's impossible <laughs> to tell. You can't go back and re remix the record somewhere else and at the same time and figure out how different it would have been. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, do, I do like I do like the idea that amidst all of the schlager music, yeah, uh, there's people placing microphones in very unusual ways and hitting yeah. hitting tins. Yeah, no, exactly. No, exactly. And you know, the schlager, the famous schlager producers would come in, and you know, there's a very famous one. It's called Jack White. Nothing to do with Jack White. The other <laughs> Jack White. And I remember I remember him very well because he was he was always he was like about he was about five foot five. You know, like always, like super tanned, an open shirt, a big medallion, mm. and two, you know, six foot blonde women on, the, you know, one on each arm. You know, the classic kind of schlager kind of imagery. So, Amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's no surprise, really. Daniel's taken to Berlin so much. I mean, this is a guy whose first release, Warm Leverettes, under the nom de plume, The Normal, was doing slightly pervy electronic minimalism 40 years ago. That was when Bergein was still a disused former power plant. So there's, in my mind, a delicious symmetry to how, in recent years, the city has helped launch Daniel's DJ career. I asked him about how this came about. I mean, I was never really a DJ. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was a DJ when I was much, much younger in a, in a holiday resort in Switzerland where I played chart hits. But what happened was that, and of course I, I was going to the clubs and I loved Bergheim and all those all the places. And a friend of mine, um, Carlo Connor, Regis, mm-hmm. who was living in Berlin at the time, he lived there for a long time, he had a project called the Sandwell District and he had a party at Bergheim and he invited me to play. And I said, you must be joking. I, you know, It's like playing your first football match at Wembley Stadium or something yeah, like that. Yeah. He said, no, you're such, a, you're such an enthusiast. He's a, such a great guy. And he, he said, no, you can do it. He did put you on early. Just get, your, you know, get, get warmed up. And I, and I did it. And I really enjoyed it. And so I thought, I, I can't not do this. This gave me so much, such a buzz, so much pleasure. So I, was, I decided to just start doing it. And... A friend, luckily, a friend of mine, uh, who's an who's an agent, I approached her and said, "I, I can't really do many gigs because I'm, you know, I'm not. You're not going to make any money out of this, but I'd love you to be my agent." She said, "Yeah." And so since then, that was about six years ago now. Mm. I've been playing regularly, and I really love it. I still really love it. Yeah. What do you notice when you're playing? Is the kind of difference in vibe or attitude between Berlin and London? Oh. It's it's a vast, it's vast, vast. I mean, in my as I said, I haven't a very, I haven't got a very broad experience of playing in London. Yeah. But but I think in Berlin, wherever I've played, people are there. They're actually into the music. I mean, they're partying, but they're they're into the music. In London, they're just partying, and whatever you know, it could be anybody almost. Do you know what I mean? That's how I feel slightly. It's part of the kind of national culture, you know. People start very early in the evening, getting off their heads. Mm. So by midnight, even they're already like far gone, and you know, I think they just okay, let's have a dance, you know, or something. Yeah. Whereas in Berlin, it's people generally speaking. It's, well, these things are generalisations, of course. Yeah. I've had some really good London, you know. I mean, it's partly where you play, partly the vibe of the night and all those kind of things I have it's not all bad but that's the generally broad brushes that you know people are already throwing up at midnight outside the club you know it's kind of you know it's different and in Berlin people just I think they just know how to do it better yeah you know and I think 
not everywhere and not all the place but I think you know in pl- the kind of place I've played in Berlin people are actually there because they're into the music as well as, as, as having a great time over the last 10 years, Daniel has divided his time between London and Berlin. During that time, there's been an acceleration of all things gentrification. I wanted to ask him what he's noticed change in the city. I've really had a sense in the period after the, when the wall came down and the intervening years of being actually, in my lifetime, actually being living in a historical kind of event yeah, yeah. and part of that event was the regeneration of of, of berlin as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a living city trying to bring it somehow together it's arguable how successful that was it's arguable how successful reunification was but you know it's dynamic i mean it's still a very dynamic city it still attracts a lot of many creative people it's a cliche isn't it oh well you're well actually man i'm moving to berlin i've got a little place there i've got a studio it's a cliche but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing i think other places now are coming up other cities are coming up around europe which which may start to take over some of that uh some of those people some of that artistic kind of inspiration so you know there are other cities but berlin from you know this is my home really i mean Mm. i I mean, I was, I'm a born and bred Londoner, but I and I like London. So I love London; it's a great city. But I, I prefer living in Berlin. Yeah. To me, it's almost like going to the countryside. Even though we live, I live right in the centre. It's like going to the countryside. You know, people yeah. like will kind of bring someone up if someone's misbehaving in public. That's happened to me when I've crossed a road against a red. Me, yeah, yeah. Against a red light, even though it's there's like, another. Hang there's on a minute. Nothing's <laughs> here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've definitely been pulled up there. Yeah. For that. <laughs> I loved chatting with Daniel just now. And one of the things that I loved the most was that however humbly and pragmatically he explained the decisions to record all of those mute records in the 80s at Hansa Studios that, you know, initially it was cheaper to record there and that you could get a drink after knocking off for the day. These decisions led to a load of music getting made where artists on mute like Depeche Mode and Nick Cave, inspired by their surroundings, really pushed their own boundaries. Around the same time that Daniel began Mute's records, another young Brit was arriving in Berlin for the first time. So it's 1978. A young record collector from Manchester arrives in West Berlin. His name is Mark Reeder. His life here is to become something of a legend. It's a story that involves Joy Division, factory records, smuggling music across the border into East Berlin, and that's all before we even get to what happened after the wall fell. I'm just off to meet him now at Niesestrasse U-Bahn station in Kreuzberg. Then I think a good coffee is in order. Was, was it like records that led you here partly? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, I only came here to buy some records. I didn't, I, right. You know, my idea, my idea about travelling around Germany was just purely to buy records, you know, initially. But um, I, I just thought, oh, you know, like in Germany, I could probably get some of these like German imports, mm. German records that you can't get as imports in the UK. You know, for my first trip to Germany was in 1976, and, and I went to West Germany, Cologne, Hamburg, and I thought, I'll have a look at a few other places, like I went to Munich, and, you know, I'd look around there. 
I never, that's, you know, Berlin, Berlin was so far away back then, you know. Yeah, it was, it was on like, the edge, people always talk about it at that time being like on the edge of the Western world. Well, it, was like, even, it was like beyond the Western world, you know, it was in the middle of East Germany, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like, it was, but it was, it was, you had to go through this transits route, flying was never an option because it cost like 650 quid to fly f- to, to Berlin, you know, mm. with British Airways. Um, so you know, people didn't do it. You know, it was just so far away. And I tell people in West Germany, oh, I'm thinking about going to Berlin, and they were always very negative about, you know, like yeah. they, no one encouraged me. Oh yeah, you have to go and see it. You know, it was like, <coughs> what do you want to go there for? So I was like quite intrigued. I thought, if nobody comes here, then maybe there's loads of record shops crammed with all these old records that no one buys. <coughs> so so I came, and um, I never left. Amazing. You know, I just, just came to buy some records and never, <laughs> and, 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 and never left. That sounds like something it, someone would have on a T-shirt or something. Like, I came to Berlin to buy some lousy records and all I got was this T-shirt or something like that. And I never left. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how, how did you get involved with being Factory's uh, representative? Here? Well, I'd known Ian before even he was in Jar Division. And I knew Rob before he'd even... Well, it was a DJ, really, because yeah. uh, working in a record shop, you know, you meet all these kind of people. And, and actually, Tony Wilson, for that matter, uh, he'd always come in and, on Saturday nights, you know, like, just before we closed and hang around. <laughs> that, that was his perfect time. His well, he didn't want to be, because he was a TV personality. Right, he, I he, see. He read the news yeah. on the TV, and, yeah. he, and, he, and, he, and he didn't want people to constantly bother him. So he, he'd come quite li- literally like 10, 15 minutes before we closed on Saturdays. Mm. And then he'd be, he knew he could then stay in the shop and just listen to records in, in private, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's how I got to know these people. And when I, when, I, when I left Manchester, Rob was like, oh, you know, we've, we're going to re-release uh, An Ideal for Living as a 12-inch. Mm. You know, can you, can you maybe give a few to uh, radio stations in Berlin or something like this, you know, because it's Brit soldiers here, you know. Yeah. So, so, so the idea was, you know, to, to sell a few in, 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 in Germany and... Maybe get it played on the radio. Now, of course, I believed in this record wholeheartedly. Yeah, and, and yeah. this was the best band in the entire universe, and it was like there was no other band that, even in Manchester, like in Joy Division, you know. And it was like there was, I thought people have to understand it, you know. They'll, they'll love it when they hear it, and they'll love it when this. No, nah, I didn't. No, no one was interested, not in the slightest. <laughs> um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like uh, um, a lot of the music that sort of. Uh, came up in the 80s from Berlin kind of comes from a similar sort of place in the heart as totally, Joy Division totally you know? totally yeah you know. and also also a lot of it back then was considered unlistenable yeah you know like what's this rubbish you know other people talk about how they'd go out so much in the 80s because the, the coal heating would take so long to heat the flats up no that was, that's that's lies they, they lie to you really it's not yeah. because the coal it myth? no it's not because the coal heating didn't heat the flats up warm enough. It was because they couldn't get up in time to go to the coal merchant to buy the coal to heat the flats. <laughs> That's the reality. Right? That's the reality. They went out all night. Yeah. yeah. Slept all day. Damn. And, and then right. and then you get up at like ten to six and you'd realise, crap, I'm, I've missed the coal merchant. He's going to be shut in two minutes. You know. So back out again. So you'd have to go out again. Go yeah. To, yeah. Go to another. Find a club or. You know, you, you, there were quite a few cinemas here, like the Arsenal Cinema in mm. the Fuggerstrasse, which was always a real haunt for, 
you know, it's all these like Tarkovsky films and all the kind of weird avant-garde yeah. stuff, and it, and it start really early, like seven seven thirty. Mm. So you spend like a couple of hours in the cinema, <laughs> nice and long, mm. watching movies, and then you know you'd move on to a cafe or something, you go hang around there for a while, and a bar, and then a club, and then and then it was time to go home. Do you have do you have like a fondness for you know how do you how do you look back on these times? Well, I'm not nostalgic, you know, I'm, just, I'm not like, you know, it's part of my life and part of my history, I suppose, but yeah. I don't I don't dwell on it and think, oh, I wish, I wish, you know, it was always like that. There are things I miss, you know, and, and, and feelings that I miss, you know, the, the thrill of, like, going into East Berlin and smuggling stuff into the East yeah. Berlin, you know, that, that was that was really super unnerving, but also at the same time totally thrilling, especially when you'd done it and you managed to get through and everything and it didn't catch you, you know. And it was like this feeling of utter elation, you know. I, I miss that, you know. Can you tell me a little bit more about that process? Well, it was like, you know, it was a very, it, it, was, it was like the hardest club to get in. <laughs> it was worse yeah. than getting into Bergheim. Yeah. Like, if you think Bergheim's bad, you should have tried getting into East Berlin. You know, uh, it was it was, you know, you had, you had your, your passport control. You then look at your passport, look at everything, and then and then you go to the customs control and then look through all your pockets and make sure you take how much money you were taking in, and you have to write it down on a piece of paper. Like this kind of like this this thing they gave you that you had to write the declaration which you had to write in. What are you taking into into East Berlin with you? Are you taking a camera, yeah. Are you taking a um, uh, how much money, how much Western currency you're taking in, and and that had to tally when you came out. So you couldn't go in with twenty West marks and come out with ten mm. because they'd say, where did that sort of ten go? And um, and everything was monitored. I mean, you know, like they, they, you registered the minute you walked through the gate, you know, and 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 for Brits. You know, as we were part of the four, the fourth power pact of mm. of Berlin, it meant that we could go over Checkpoint Charlie mm. or Friedrichstrasse Underground Station, railway station. We could go go into East Berlin that way, or go via Checkpoint Charlie. Checkpoint Charlie looked like a big petrol station, yeah, like petrol pump. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd smuggle cassettes into East because they were the easiest. You know, a, rec- a, a, a single, a record, or a vinyl, or something is not an easy thing to smuggle, in, especially in the summertime. So no, it, well, it, yeah, it's yeah, like, it's like you know, where you put it, you know, yeah. where you're going to put it. You know, I went to I went to gigs in in East Berlin. You yeah, know, I had a look and see what was happening there, and these were all the kind of fish, officially kind of. St- the bands were state regulated, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd been approved by the. Right, by so the more sort of state, schlager you know. kind No, of no, it wasn't. It was like rock music, but yeah. it was. But it was like, you know, this. It was drivelly kind of like 70s rock, you know, it was like, mm. like tepid versions of Free or something like this, right? They were all that kind of like dressed in jeans and playing blues and, you know, like progressive rock stuff. And it was yeah. like, there must be something else. There's nothing else. You know, and it was like trying to find stuff and. and, and, and I saw this kid on the, the train. He was wearing a pair of drain pipes and it was a bit spiky hair. And I thought, oh, he may even know where there's some, maybe some kind of new wavy kind of bands playing of some kind, you know. Got he got off the train and I ran after him, you know? and I said, do you know anywhere? And he's like, there's nothing like, there's no punk rock. It's all forbidden. I'm like, well, the way you look, I'd be like, I can't, I can't. Yeah, this is about this is about as far as I can go. So everything is forbidden here. You know, there are no punk rock concerts. Nothing. Like, what about records? Nothing, nothing. You know, they, they listen to it off the radio. Yeah. And that's it. So I gave him my address. I wrote him my address. I said, if you hear is anything happening, write me a postcard, let me know. Because they couldn't telephone into the West. And uh, I didn't hear anything from him mm. at all. And then a couple of months later, I get a letter from this girl. 
asking to meet me at the Palast de République, which was the former Parliament building, in in the cocktail bar upstairs. Right? Yeah, they had this beautiful round cocktail bar. It was like, it looked like like a set from Stanley Kubrick, two thousand one. And it, and and she said, "Yeah, I'd like to meet you. Can you can you come over on these two days? One of these two days, and I'll be there and wait wait for you. I, you know, go there, meet this girl. You know." And the thing is, not like today where you've got Facebook, where you can look at pictures to see what they look like and stuff like that. It was like, is this, could this be her? Or, is, or could she just be some girl, random girl? You know, and anyway, I met her and she, and she just kind of basically sounded me out, you know, mm. like, what was, what, where am I from? What am I doing? What do I want? want? And she was involved in this kind of little, kind of new wavy punk rock scene of kids who mm. in West, East Berlin was kind of like, they, they were having parties at home really because there was nowhere for them to go so I fell in with these kids you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, I, and and eventually I ended up like you know having this idea this idea became Mark's involvement in organising secret gigs in churches right under the noses of the Stasi in East Berlin he talks about how he helped set this up you know they had western artists perform on telly you know like yeah. Boney M and stuff like that right but like secret gigs by unknown bands were not done and and I'd met these dissidents in Prague by chance and uh, and we did this gig which was disguised as a wedding reception in this kind of farmhouse in the outskirts of nowhere in the middle of Bohemia you know and and Czechoslovakia's most wanted it's like all these dissidents turned up you know plastic people of the universe and all these people Jolly Joker and they all kind of turns up you know Garage all these bands you know, t- all these people turn up at this event mm. and we all get completely sloshed and and do this party and, it, and, and it, at that time I wasn't so aware about how significant it was it, it turns out you know that it was <laughs> and, and, and that it was possible as well so having had this experience of actually being Performing in, in Czechoslovakia, which was even more draconian in, in, in a sense than, than than in East Berlin, I thought maybe we could do the, we could do the, do the gig in a church. Mm. Same thing. What would what would the kind of repercussions of if you'd got caught or if things had gone wrong or if the Stasi kind of got wind of everything? Well, I told my friend you know, initially when we were planning this uh, this gig, I said to them, you know, what, we could do this, but if you get caught. Your lives will change forever. If I if I, yeah. if I get caught, I'll never come back. They won't let me back in. So the, the only thing that you're going to miss is me bringing cassettes in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's it. You know. Whereas for you, your lives will change forever. You know, because you'll be blacklisted and you know your lives will be miserable. And uh, I don't know what what the consequences of like, doing such a thing as an illegal gig would be, mm. but it had never been done before, so it's probably be really harsh just to make an example of you all you know and I think I think I think maybe a little bit of the I, the driving and it, was, it, it, it wasn't guys that were doing this it was, there were two girls right? it was two girls yeah and I think the, the kind of the, the idea of the thrill of it was all you know part of the actual attraction because I went into East Berlin every week, you know, and take it, smuggling cassettes in and stuff. I had that thrill every every time I went in, you know, this mm. thrill of elation of like succeeding, yeah, and yeah. this thrill of like actually going through this, you know, rigmarole of kind of this, this cat and mouse 
game of trying to like take all this stuff illegally into East Berlin and hopefully the, the customers wouldn't strip search me and find it you know um, whereas they didn't have that in their daily lives they had it in a different way you know with the Stasi in, in form, knowing that anybody could potentially be an informer they had that but the thrill of actually doing something against the state they didn't actually particularly have apart from the fact that they were punks you know yeah, yeah. so to take this it was a little bit like the cherry on top of the cake in a sense right it was like like here's your opportunity to do to have that feeling of elation the mm -hmm. thrill of actually arrange something doing something completely anti-state and totally illegal you know do you want to do this you know and they were like yes it was like no discussion it was like yes we want to do this we don't care what happens you know they might even throw us out of East Germany <laughs> you know oh, okay you know, so 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 we went along with it and did this gig, and the whole time we're thinking, you know, the, the Stasi could come at any moment, the police could come at any moment, and just kick the door in, and we'd be all arrested, and you know, and the, and the, and the suspicion of like who in within the circle of friends we had, who potentially could be a Stasi informer as well, you know, like you never you never knew, you know, yeah. that's why we only invited thirty people because we, th we wanted to diminish the, ris the risk of how, how many people and, and these are all kind of like so-called trusted friends you know and we said no photographs well, well you know, I took my camera but we only took like two photographs the priest took two photographs and that was it I was in before the gig it wasn't during the gig we said mm. no concert no gigs no no uh, cons uh, photographs during the concert as it turned out uh, you know when I got to see Stasi file and other people got to see their Stasi files um, who were part of that scene we discovered that some people had taken photographs you know and there were Stasi informers in fact one of the people who was our one of our closest trusted friends was actually a Stasi informer crazy you but know. they just kind of let it go well they wanted to see the gig you know right yeah that's, that's and they were never going to and that's just one thing I realised afterwards I was like oh, you, know, you know they didn't inform on any of the gigs or any of the activities before they happened because they wanted themselves to actually experience that. If they'd have told in advance, oh, they're going to do a gig and it's going to be there and then and that, then the police would have definitely been there, you know. Yeah. And that would have been it, game over, and they would never have seen it, you know. So, so by saying in their reports, it'd be something like, you know, I only found out about it a few hours before it actually happened, and I went and there was no time to make a report prior to the gig, you know. Mm. So that's the way they got around actually, like, having to report in, in advance. Listening to Mark talk about the thrill, as well as the risk of taking music into East Berlin, now it feels like the stuff of a Cold War movie. It's so easy to forget that that was all going on where I'm stood right now. from the Spati, where I run into an old friend from London and we make a joke about how we've swapped Marmite for Club Marta. Maybe more so now in this Brexit era, bumping into Brits has become a frequent occurrence here. It's easy to overlook that when Mark and Daniel first got here, there were no budget flights from Stansted, no weekend techno excursions. These two pioneers 
let their love of music take them into a walled-off city in a time when most Brits were still watching Dad's Army. And now in 2018, they both remain connected as ever to this changing city. You've been listening to Lost and Sound in Berlin, a podcast exploring music and identity in Berlin, supported using public funding by the Arts Council of England. Music by Tom Giddens. This episode is also being hosted by Bear Radio. You can find other podcasts from Berlin on bearradio.org. Thanks for listening. And in particularly in absence of any episode for a while, I broke my arm falling off a bike in Gorlitzer Park and it's taken some time for it to mend. I really want to take this moment to thank you for sticking with this podcast. And now I'm mended, I'll be posting an episode every two weeks. If you want to join me on the socials, you can follow at Instagram forward slash Lost and Sound in Berlin and on Facebook at forward slash Lost and Sound in Berlin. Thanks for listening and catch you again in two weeks.